Well, I wish we were coming into this podcast tonight a little bit more optimistic about Chicago Cubs baseball. We were feeling real good last Monday when we recorded and the Cubs had just knocked off Tampa Bay. But since then, pretty rough in Cubs land. Lots to get to here on the podcast tonight. The Cubs wrapping up a difficult homestand here going two and five. They now embark on one of their hardest road trips of the year. Three in Atlanta, three in Milwaukee. We've got feelings on that. We got some weather. We've got some good news on the farm. One minor leaguer in particular, a 20-year-old center fielder, perhaps a future star, Pete Crow Armstrong. We want to talk about his hot start. And speaking of hot, Kyle Schwarber last night, red hot at Angel Hernandez in Philadelphia. Any chance we get to talk about the state of Major League umpiring, you know Randall's got some things to say. So we'll wrap up with that. And, of course, talk number 66 here on Behind the Yellow Line, a baseball podcast. Full crew tonight. Jeremy's here. Randall is here. I want to start with this, though. COVID. My COVID chronicles. It happened. It was just a matter of time until one of us landed positive with COVID. I was the first to go here. If you listened to the podcast last week, you probably heard it. I was not doing well. Kind of struggled and labored through that podcast. Randall, I just thought I was tired, right? Four Cubs games in four days. I kind of blamed it on that. COVID. That's what it ended up being. But uh, feeling much better here today. And kind of scary when you take that at-home test and you see the two lines pop up. And it's like, oh, man, here you go, Ronan. You got to face down COVID. Well, first of all, glad you're feeling better and a speedy continued recovery to you. Yeah, COVID, COVID is scary. Welcome to the last two years, I guess. I think we, we all know this by now. But yeah, COVID is, is is scary. It's insidious. You can do everything right and you still test positive for it. You know, we're very lucky we have vaccinations for it now that reduce that risk completely or not completely, but a great deal. We have therapeutics now, so we're, we're very lucky, better to get it now than two years ago, but it's a great reminder. You can do everything right and still end up testing positive, and it's a great reminder to just continue being careful out there, and a lot of, you know, a lot of places relaxing, uh, re- relaxing the restrictions. Just a great reminder to continue being careful, so uh, again, speedy continued recovery to you. Well, two things on that front, Randall, certainly stand out to me. The first one being, I feel very fortunate that I was in a position that I could get vaccinated. And I was on board with that from the very beginning, got vaccinated as soon as I could, got my booster, felt like I followed that protocol. The other thing that I think really helped is we are two years into it. This is not the same as if you get COVID a year ago or heaven forbid, two years ago at this point, April of 2020, not a good time to be contracting this. I think uh, what's going around now is weaker. I think it's it's been beat down by time a little bit. Certainly science is on our side. So all of that is a good thing. And honestly, what I feel today more than anything is relief. And I'm not saying this to make either of you two feel bad, and I certainly hope you can both avoid it. But for a while here, I've been thinking it's kind of inevitable. Like we're all going to face this beast at some point. My time has come and gone now here. And with that, I've got a strengthened immune system. I've got the antibodies in my system. I feel kind of reinforced with whatever's coming the rest of this summer. But I, I was also sort of tired of any time I had a sniffle or any time I wasn't feeling good in the last two years that, oh, crap, do I have it? Is this it? I can kind of push that to the side now, I hope, get this thing behind me and have an incredible summer here without that worry or that dark cloud over my head of, oh, crap. Is so you just got that over? mentality of I've gotten it over with full speed ahead from here. And, and for a while now, and months and months, I've been thinking, like, we're all going to face that beast at some time. I hope, again, I hope you both avoid it. Kind of sucks that I was the first of the three of us on the show, like, of all the guys to get it. Randall, I, honestly, I thought it was you or I that was most likely to get it first. And the reason for that was, you know, we're both sort of education adjacent. We're around kids all the time. We're exposed to people that maybe Jeremy sees on a given week just because of the status of our work. So... I thought it might have been you, ends up being me. Jeremy's just coasting there like, oh, I'm good, man. Nothing to worry about here. But uh, a big sense of relief here is what I feel more than anything. It was bad. I was very sick most of last week, really started to turn the corner this weekend. And today felt like a brand new day. Got a little workout in. My lungs aren't destroyed. I'm like, you know what? I got the worst of this behind me. And, and now I'm feeling, I got that Jeremy swagger when the Illini win the conference, you know, that cockiness that he gets no i don't i don't know that because it never it never happens so I, oh I don't it know oh that. it does happen and a man you've well, seen oh five big ten championship this year that's how i'm big feeling ten tournament right champs last year yeah uh, i guess the real question though You're is strutting how you down feeling. state street there yeah the swagger the strut. i'm feeling pretty good you know what was the weirdest thing about it 
was I expected the headache. I expected the fatigue, the sinus issues. You guys heard that firsthand last week. We edited out a portion of the show last week because it was gross and it was an accident. It's not what I was trying <laughs> to have happen. But the thing that really opened my eyes to it and the thing that got me to take that test last week, I was teaching a lecture Thursday that I had taught Wednesday. So like I, I teach the same lecture the second day and that's normally the better lecture for me. And it was a lecture on photojournalism in sports history. And it's a fun lecture. We looked at like classic pictures and talked about them and the imagery that these photos sort of evoke in people. So I'm looking at a picture of an iconic football play and I'm having a difficult time describing what I'm seeing. And I ended class kind of embarrassed. And I'm like, man, something is not right. Like that whole fog or COVID brain or whatever they call it, that is 100% real. And that was the thing that on Thursday got me to take that test, which ended up being positive. The picture that actually did it too, Odell Beckham Jr.'s rookie year, that one-handed catch that he made against the Cowboys where he's like vertical, like 90 degree angle with the end zone and all that. I was looking at that photo and I was having a difficult time describing things on the field and the chain gang and things like that. And I'm in my head as I'm trying to churn this thing out, I'm like, what the hell is going on with me? Took the test right after class, came up positive and was like, damn, that makes a whole lot of sense. And obviously everything else, the way I was feeling Sunday night after that Cubs game, the way I felt during the recording last Monday, it all kind of came together at that point. Um, but one bad thing about last week, you're sick, not feeling well, lots of time to watch baseball. Holy crap, was that a bad homestand for two, the Cubs. Two weekends in a row now, you've not felt good after a Cubs series. Yeah. One biological, one uh, psychological, I suppose. There's we, we have therapeutics and we have vaccines for COVID. There is no therapeutic and no vaccine for bad baseball, unfortunately. No, no. And I was sick, man. It's a really tough homestand here for the Cubs. I want to start with that before we talk about this road trip and what's really going to be an interesting two-week stretch of Cubs baseball. Lots to get into there, but let's let's start with this homestand. Opened off really good. 4-2 win against Tampa Bay last Monday. Patrick Wisdom hits that bomb. We're all thinking, hey, if you can win this series against Tampa Bay, you got Pittsburgh coming in for four. This is the makings of a really good homestand and a chance for the Cubs to be maybe a couple of games over 500 going on this tough road trip. <laughs> Not the case. No. They drop Tuesday 6-5. to five. They drop Wednesday 8-2. to two. Then they lose 3-4 of four to Pittsburgh. Randall, this is not what we wanted at all. And yes, we can celebrate that 21-0 victory Saturday over Pittsburgh, and we should. It was a hell of a day, memorable day in Cubs history. This is not a homestand that we're going to look back kindly Disappointing. on. Brutal, Disappointing is a word. I'm not going to say it's the word because the word is probably a lot less polite, but it's disappointing. And the 21 nothing win is great, but unfortunately it doesn't erase the two losses prior and it didn't, it didn't prevent them from losing the day after one, one pretty good win and three pretty bad losses. You know, people can talk about the pirates got some pieces. They got some arms in the bullpen. They got some decent pieces in the lineup. You, you need to, you not, not you should, you need to win more than one game in four tries against this pirates team at home. It, it just, just a disappointing, unfortunate, poorly played weekend on the part of the Cubs. Jeremy, the offense was something that struggled on this homestand outside of that 21-run game, but I think what's pissing me off more, the defense, really bad defensive efforts, and I don't know what's going on with Villar. If it's a yips thing, if it's in his head, he looks completely lost on the infield, and if this team doesn't have good defense, they're not going to win a lot of ball games. Right, yeah, Jonathan VR had uh, definitely had some issues over this past week. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it goes to show how much the Cubs are missing a guy like Andrelton Simmons, who they really do need as a shortstop or as a third possible third baseman to, you know, provide some defense because the Cubs have a pitching staff that's not going to strike out a lot of guys. It's going to get a lot of ground balls and they need to have defense. I mean, I watched it just to put in context with like what the White Sox did about a week ago uh, when they had Dallas Keuchel on the mound, like you have to make the plays on the balls that are hit weekly because with the, with the Cubs and with a guy like Keiko, they're going to give up some hard contact. And when the bad contact comes, you have to have, have on the good contact made those plays. You can't make errors behind them. And so I think that's why like yeah. a guy like Simmons is really a key piece to this team because that was what they were planning on. They need defense. And I like, I like VR because I think he has a decent bat. I think he's provided something offensively. But, you know, putting him at shortstop yesterday just showed how how weak they are in that spot. And I think Simmons coming back is going to be a big help for them. 
Yeah, I, I don't need to see VR on the left side of the infield anymore. If you if you feel the need to play him defensively, play him at second base where you can hide the arm a little bit. I don't need to see him at short. I don't necessarily need to see him at third either. You know, I, I know I called the signing and I quote cromulent and potentially I think he can still be that, but I don't think you can play him at shortstop. And I think David Ross got a little testy with a reporter yesterday when they asked why VR was at shortstop. And I think Ross kind of sarcastically pointed out that he's the only backup shortstop on the roster. And okay, that, that's fine. Um, I, I mean, you had a day off. I know Ross likes to give guys two days off with a day off before a day off, but it, it, it's not good. Just not good at all. Well, like, who am I to criticize David Ross, right? He's in the clubhouse. He's talking to these guys. He's got so much more information than any of the three of us have. And he makes decisions that you and I sitting at home can go, what the hell are you doing? That if we were in his shoes, we'd have a different perspective on. But I don't love Nico not playing Sunday, especially with the off day Monday. Now, on one hand, you can say, okay, Nico's had an injury history problem. The Cubs clearly don't have backup shortstop until Simmons comes back you got to do everything you can to protect Nico but not just him not starting in that game I thought there was a viable pinch hit opportunity late for, late in the game where Patrick Wisdom's up why doesn't Nico get in there I assume David Ross is saying look I gave him the day off he gets the day off I wanted him to have two days off but that was really the first decision this year where I'm sitting at home going damn it Ross that game was winnable on Sunday and I think you put Nico Horner in that game either at the outset or pinch hitting later there's a very good chance the Cubs win that game and the two two you could argue defensively related Nico not being in there for defense and VR at short allowed one run to score on a, the throwing error by VR. And then again, as you said, the great opportunity to have Nico pinch hit there where contact probably brings in a run and it, either of those things happen. There's a really good chance the Cubs potentially win that ball game or at least don't lose it like they did. So it, it was frustrating. I know we can't do anything, but move on. We can't go back and fix it. It would be nice if we could take some of those 21 runs and kind of redistribute them across the homestand. Cause just about all the losses were close. Unfortunately, we can't do that maybe in the next uh, CBA. Uh, it, just a frustrating homestand. It, it's a, a lot of the problems with this team, and we know there are a lot of them, were, were at the forefront this week. Well, that ninth inning in particular, too, just has you like banging your head against the wall. Suzuki has a wonderful at bat, puts the ball in play. How does Ortega not score? He doesn't score. Then Wilson is up. I love Wilson. I've been saying for the last two years, extend Wilson, extend Wilson. I absolutely hated his approach there in the ninth. You just got to make some type of contact. You're probably going to get a run in. He's down on three pitches and really not close to any of it. So again, I'm not here to nitpick Wilson Contreras. Ray, Jeremy, I just wanted a batter in that position to just put the damn bat on the ball and neither him nor Frank were able to do that with a chance to tie it or win the game. Definitely. I, I thought those were two poor uh, played appearances by both Wilson and by Frank. And I was very surprised. I thought, you know, Frank came up in a situation, obviously with two outs. So it's a little bit more difficult for him to get that run home, but you, you would hope he, I thought he would have more opportunity to put the ball in play. And it, it was just like, it was just a bad situation. I, I didn't understand how, as you said, Ortega didn't score when Suzuki, when that ball landed, I just assumed that run was coming home. And then he's barely like at third uh, or around third. Uh, and you know, I don't think Ross would ever like Nico had the day off. I don't think he was going to put him in for wisdom. I, I just, I don't think that was probably even really ever crossed his mind, you know, cause wisdom's going to take that plate appearance. Uh, I don't think, you know, Nico's off day. Um, uh, but to me, honestly, I, I, I'm a little more disappointed in, uh, the pitching, uh, necessarily than the offense necessarily. And, uh, like Marcus Stroman, Kyle Hendricks. They've, they've kind of struggled a little bit, and it's been extremely disappointing to me to see that. Hopefully we can see them turn it around, but uh, it, it's been a disappointment. And, and and I mean, Mark Lyer Jr. is not a guy, you know, I, I don't take anything from him. Like, I, I expect not good things, so I don't really – to me it doesn't matter. But then Ethan Roberts coming behind him, he struggled, and he's he's kind of not really been that good in the Cubs bullpen. So I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up going back to AAA, you know, if he keeps pitching like this. So I, there's been a lot of issues, I think, on the mound that I would hope could correct themselves that have been, you know, problematic. I mean, Marcus Stroman should be not have an ERA in the eights, hopefully, in the next coming weeks. Yeah, and he's had some bad innings that have kind of blown yeah. everything up for him. He's going to go tomorrow night in Atlanta. It's not an easy place to go and pitch against that offense. Another starter 
that I, I'm getting worried about now is Justin Steele. He had that awesome start the first weekend of the year against Milwaukee, been really rough the last three. And the more that I watch Justin Steele, be not a guy that's going to translate to the starting rotation. And a big part of that is first time through the order, the velocity dips. And when that thing goes down and he's not locating the strike zone, strikes me as a guy who could potentially be a lights out relief pitcher, but maybe not an answer in the starting rotation. And given that I don't think this is going to be a playoff bound team, I really don't mind them seeing if he's a viable starter. Certainly giving him a month's worth of starts isn't going to end the season for the Cubs. But the more I watch him on that mound, I think this guy's going to end up being more of a top end reliever than somebody who's going to stay in the starting rotation. I agree with you. Uh, Ronan, I, I, I think that Justin Steele, to me, it's like once he gets to 50 pitches, it seems like everything just kind of drops off. Um, I, yeah. I think he's a guy that long term is a bullpen guy. Um, I don't mind them trying to see him in the rotation, but so far, I think it's kind of shown that like there's kind of a limit there with with him. Like once he reaches a certain point, kind of really drops off a guy. I actually wouldn't mind seeing them. Maybe move back if there's room in the rotation and try it, even though he's been lights out in the bullpen is Keegan Thompson. I mean, he's been lights on the bullpen. Yeah. Maybe they'll try to give him and stretch him out a little bit, give him a few starts. Yeah. You know, if, if it turns out that Justin Steele is better in the, in the bullpen, either as a short reliever or as what Keegan Thompson is doing right now, where he gives you three innings two times a week, that's great. Um, you've found that out, but you know, it raises the question of who slots in, in that starting rotation. If you put Keegan Thompson in that spot, maybe he struggles the same way. So it would be, it would be a little bit of a disappointment if between Adbert, when he comes back, whenever that is Steele and Thompson, you have three guys who are lights out in that, you know, two or three inning bullpen role, but you aren't able to make a viable starting pitcher out of any of three. That would be a little bit disappointing. Yeah. So I, I support them giving Steele a little bit more rope just to do everything you can to see what you've got. It would be a little bit of a disappointment to me if he ends up as just another, just another long reliever as if, you know, as if there's anything wrong with having valuable guys like that. I, I think he could be a top end reliever though like a big time arm on the left side getting you key outs late in a ball game i just don't know that he's going to ever get to the point that he can give you six innings or five innings i guess the starters these days consistently bad sign for steel first start one walk second start two walks third start three walks fourth start four walks that's a bad pace that's not sustainable for him now on the short end there is help coming to the starting rotation alec mills is close if you consider that help wade miley is close in terms of his rehab and getting back into it Longer picture, we know Caleb Killian's lurking there, and we're going to see him at some point this year. But there doesn't just there's not this sense that there is immediate help coming and immediate help that you can look at and go, oh, there's a guy that's going to give you six quality innings each time out. I think that this part of the rotation is going to be a problem all season long. There, the there is no magic bullet coming. You've got a, a, a lot of guys coming who could be useful, but you aren't able to guarantee that any of them are going to be useful. And it would not surprise me if by the end of the season, we do not look terribly favorably upon most of this rotation. I do think Stroman will get it straightened out. Hendricks did get it straightened out, though he wasn't facing particularly stiff competition uh, on Saturday. Beyond that, I, I think we're going to see continued, uh, a continued shuffle, continued turnover. And again, if that's the case, that's fine. Use this time to find out what you have going forward. Don't waste it by giving starts to, to retreads, to veterans who you know have nothing left. Use this time to figure out what kind of long-term options you might have in the rotation. Randall, you're touching on something here that I kind of want to pivot to here before we talk about the upcoming road trip, this 40 man roster or the Cubs are going to have to cut back down to a typical roster size. What do you do here? Uh, who's the obvious choice to get booted right now? I mean, one guy that I would love to see get more playing time is Alfonso Rivas. I think he's a guy that deserves more looks. Other than that, I don't want to see a whole lot more of Jason Hayward, but realistically, what can we expect in the next week in terms of with what they've got, making this roster a little bit better? With what they've got, you know, that's the question. I do think that when they have to take two guys off this roster, I feel like Leiter Jr. and maybe Roberts, as unfortunate as that would be, uh, are probably those two candidates, if only because it's a numbers game. You, you know, you need you need starting pitchers and you can't you can never have too many guys in the bullpen, but two guys are going to have to go. And if you're making it solely performance based, the unfortunate reality might be sending Roberts back to Iowa. I don't want to see that. I think he can be very good. I want to see him figured out at the major league level. But again, it is a numbers game. Uh, what you do as far as the rotation, uh, you know, I don't know what you do. You hope that Miley is able to come back and be 
steady enough. And Mills, you know, I don't know that he, you ever count on him for a whole lot. I don't necessarily know what they do with this rotation going forward, other than keep the same guys out there and hope for the best. Jeremy, on an offensive side, though, what can you mix around here player-wise to get a little bit more from that side of the ball? Uh, it's, it, I, I agree. It's, it's a little interesting. I don't have a lot of faith like you and Jason Hayward. Um, I do think that, like, you know, if his numbers are kind of up there, like, I, it would surprise to see him play him a little bit just because, you know, they might want to show him off a little bit. Like if he's playing well, like they want him, you know, maybe somebody might get interested in that if the Cubs pay it down. So like, I, I don't I have faith in him. I don't think he's, it's, he's, I think eventually, you know, he's, he's not going to perform pretty well, but I, I can, I still think it's probably in their best interest on that sense to, you know, give him some playing time uh, on the other, on the other side with that though, I don't know. I, I, I do feel like Herman Seal is a guy, you know, if you're looking into his numbers, he, 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 while his top line numbers don't look so good, his, his underlying stats look pretty decent. Like he hit, he's hit the ball pretty hard. He probably should have more success than he's been having. So I feel like maybe he should be getting a little more playing time Whereas someone like Ortega, I know he's a lefty, but it, it kind of looks like the opposite. Like maybe he's kind of overperforming a little bit. So I, I could, I could see like, you know, one of those guys I, I imagine won't be here for the long haul. But I, I, I kind of feel like even though he's not lefty, that Hermosillo is probably the option they should give more attention to and more of an effort to. Am I the only one bleeding for more Rivas? No, not at all. I'm an no, Alfonso I want more Rivas. Rivas. I'm an Alfonso Rivas supporter. I think the question is, do you play him every day just because this team – if they're, you know, it's lacking in a lot of things, but this team is lacking in power. And I guess among your first base options, Schwindel gives you a little more power potential than Rivas does, but we know Rivas is a pretty good hitter. He's not going to give you a whole lot of power. He did hit his, his homer on uh, Saturday and that was not a particularly weather aided home run, but he's not going to give you a whole lot of power. And I'm still just old fashioned enough to think that you need a first baseman who can hit for power. And if you're not going to have that, you're going to need to get power from other places in the lineup. And the Cubs don't have that. The Cubs do not have a whole lot of power in the lineup. You know, if you think Rivas is just that good of a contact hitter and a doubles guy, maybe start putting him in there more. Um, and I'd like, you know, I'd like to see that anyway. You have a DH spot. He can play the corner outfield. So I'd like to see him more. I think it's a question of where you can put him in the lineup and who you sit in order to get him those at-bats. Like, to me, that's not really an issue. I I, I don't, I, I, to me, I, I would just play your best hitters. And I, I think Rivas right now is one of them. I don't worry about like, where's the power coming from? I uh, that's not an issue to me. I would just play like, you know, the guys that are the best players, the best hitters the, that are going to be the most productive hitters. Um, and, you know, you could be a first baseman and, and not have a ton of power. If, I mean, if you're having an eye on base or percentage, you're hitting, you know, you could, you get, I mean, Mark Grace was a long time first baseman, one of the best first baseman in Cubs history, all-star, not a guy with a ton of power. And I think, especially the age we're going in with these, the balls and right now, like I, Power is probably going to be at a premium, but like I think you need to make a lot of contact too. Um, and that's actually one thing I like about this Cubs offense. It seems like there's a lot of contact guys. Uh, we've put the ball in play a lot for the most part. Unfortunately, it didn't quite happen in certain situations on Sunday. But it's not, I, always, I it's like, not always good contact when they do make it. But I, I like it. I like I like that. I like the contact. I, I think it's I think it's an advantage this team has over some previous teams that have struggled offensively. Um, and so I, I would give Rivas more time. I'd put him in the outfield too if he can handle it. And in that 21 game romper, he's the only guy who hit a home run. Uh, the only homer of the day was Alfonso Rivas. So I think he deserved more playing time. And I think it was a mistake to send him down in the first place. And I, I don't disagree at all. And I think sending him down was much more of a numbers game. You needed a starting pitcher and somebody had to go, which is just the, the nature of it. I don't think they sent him down as a reflection of him. And again, I don't disagree with you on his playing time. It's, it, again, it's not that this team is so great that you can or can't do certain things. It, you know, if Rivas is one of your best nine hitters, and I think he is, absolutely give him more time. Uh, you know, David Ross and front office are going to be trying a lot of things with this roster to see what works, what doesn't, what they have and what they don't. So I would not have a problem with them playing Rivas more and saying exactly what you said. It doesn't matter. He's not going to hit for power. He's one of the best hitters. One other player I want to mention here, and then I promise we're going to be positive for a few minutes. It's been kind of a tough stretch here on the show. And I don't want to write a guy off two weeks into the season, and he's only played 13 games, but I'll say it, a little bit disappointed with what we've seen in Nick Madrigal. 
We thought this was going to be a high-contact guy. Got to be slapping singles all over the ballpark. Just off to a bit of a slow start, 213, 288. Again, very small sample size, but I do think it's fair to say what we've seen in a couple weeks to open the year, eh, not so good. I hope he gets it figured out. Yeah, uh, you know, Madrigal, as I when he was with the White Sox, and I think we've mentioned this before, he was always a guy that I kind of always worried about. Just because he had so much contact, he didn't have a lot of – uh, strength that he was going to hit into some, you know, pitchers pitches, a lot of, you know, easy outs. But I, I think, you know, on the flip side of that, when you are making so much contact and when he has had a, you know, the, his, his BABIP, his batting average on balls and play is so low that I feel like it should correct this. But I don't see him being like an above average, like crazy hitter, but if he's like an average hitter, which he should probably be around playing second base, I think he'd be a productive member of the team. So while he hasn't been great, I'm not super worried about him. Yeah, and again, he's hasn't played in – I mean, when did he get injured last season? It was fairly early on because he had been out for – 54 games. He had so, been out yeah, for a while. Like late May. Yeah, he had been out for a while even when the Cubs acquired him in the deadline trade. So, you know, he's still, in a sense, kind of getting his legs back underneath him. And it was either Pat or J.D., who said something during the broadcast yesterday that the Cubs had been working with him to make him a little more selective, try and take more walks. And that's fine. You know, you want guys to be well-rounded hitters, but Madrigal's primary value isn't necessarily in being patient. It's in making contact. And we remember when Starling Castro was a younger and a little bit more innocent, the Cubs, I think, messed with him a little bit by trying to make him more selective. And that threw him off pretty good. And I'm not saying this coaching staff is doing this. It's a completely different front coaching staff, a completely different player. But, you know, if a guy's one great tool is making contact, I don't know that you need to mess with that too much. And again, I'm not I'm not saying they are doing this. Uh, it was one comment from the broadcast. But if that's the guy's great value to the team, I don't know that you want to mess with that too much and risk kind of messing him up as a hitter and taking away that what value he does have in the name of trying to increase a tool that he doesn't necessarily have. Well, he's I think always that's fair. And I Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, he's always had a, an okay eye. I mean, he's not – he's always walked a decent amount. Like, he, he's not like Starlin who never took walks. He's always been a solid walk. The thing that surprised me is he struck out a little much this year. Uh, he used to never strike out. Like, in the minors, he never struck out. He had maybe the lowest strikeout rates there were in the minors. So, I think that's a little bit concerning, the, how, how strikeouts. But the, he has walked. Like, he's always been a guy who's taken his walks. Well, to your point on the strikeouts, he's striking out about 10% of his bats in a short sample size this season for the Cubs. At no point in the minors with the White Sox was that above 4.7. Yeah. So you're right. We're seeing this. It's bats, that's passing the eye test. He's striking out more than we're used to. But I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea here. I, I do think he's going to figure it out, to your point, Jeremy. It's just that there's been so much anticipation after the trade for Kimbrell. We've been wanting to see him in a Cubs uniform. With Hoyer out this year with Tommy John, we don't get distracted with that and the other part of the trade. It's been a little anticlimactic in a couple of weeks. Nick's probably going to get it figured out. I think at the end of the season, when we look at this offense, the highs and the lows, he's going to be somewhere in the middle. He's going to have a fine season, nothing spectacular, nothing terrible. That's probably where this is going to end up. Just a disappointing first couple of weeks. And yeah, there is added pressure. He was traded from the White Sox. He comes over to the Cubs. He's supposed to be the starting second baseman. Just not driving early on here in April. Let's talk about something much happier. Saturday, 21 runs, 23 hits for the Cubs, just two innings in the ballgame. The Cubs failed to score a run, and really everything about Saturday was perfect. It was the only day at Wrigley Field this weekend that the weather was fantastic. 39,000 people out at the ballpark. You squint your eyes, you look at that. Kind of felt like the good days of the last couple of years at Wrigley on Saturday. Caught Every inning of that ball game as I was recovering from COVID, loved every minute of it. That was about as fun as it gets watching this team. The one damn game on this whole entire homestand that I could not watch and was only able to listen to a couple innings of. And, of course, they, they go and do that. Even even the Friday game, which I was anticipating not being able to, to watch, of course, gets moved to the evening and I'm able to see the whole damn thing. The one game I can't watch, they go out there and they score 21 runs. And all I can do is, is see it as a, a string of updates from the two of you as I, I get off work. So typical, typical Cubs doing everything possible to vex me. Very fun game, Randall. I'm sad you missed it. Uh, you oh, know, oh I watched the replay. Oh, he watched the replay. It was good. To, you know, could have calm. You keep things calm for at least one day. 
uh, the big 21 nothing shutout. Uh, I mean, I like one of the funnest Cubs games you could possibly watch. Um, it was just it was a remarkable game, to be honest, it, to to put up a number that much and, you know, not let anything up. Uh, the Pirates didn't score any runs. So it, it was just kind of a fantastic game all around. And it really helped the Cubs run differential. I know you say you can't move those runs around to add different widths, but the Cubs, even losing all those three games, you know, the Cubs won that series by run differential and, and they're, they're, uh, you know, expected wins that have gone up so much. So we'll see. I'm sure that'll even out over the next week or so, but for right now, the Cubs are playing way, way below what their, uh, their run differential says they should be. It was the largest shutout victory in Cubs history, at least going back to 1901. So maybe something wacky happened in the late 1800s. But it's so cool when something like that happens. And for it to happen, Cubs-Pittsburgh, that's the rivalry that goes back to the 1880s. So two old school teams that have been playing each other for 120 years at this point. Vintage Wrigley Field just looked like the perfect, perfect day at the ballpark. And I'll say that, you know, my game plan on Saturday uh, was recovering from COVID. Uh, Harriet was going to the art museum. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna drop you off the museum. I'm coming home and just watching the ball game. The one stop that I made on the way, I figure both of you could appreciate this. The, the one thing that sustained me during the worst of COVID, copious amounts of spicy green chili. And that allowed me to kind of make sure that my sinus was working and my taste buds were working. So I popped by a place here, picked up six burritos that I ended up eating over the course of the weekend and enjoying, just throw to the microwave when you're hungry. So I'm driving in the car on Saturday, got Pat Hughes on the radio for that eight-run second inning. It just never stopped. And it was everybody in the lineup contributing. I think every starter in the ballgame at least had a base hit or was on base. You know, everybody contributed to that game is what I'm trying to say. But there's just something timeless about driving around, Pat Hughes on the radio, Cubs offense snapping. I will never get tired of that. And it made me feel a little bit better on a weekend that otherwise I was feeling pretty bad. All right, well, let's talk about this upcoming road trip here because the Cubs are embarking on what's going to be a pretty difficult stretch of baseball here, not just including the road trip, but the next 14 games for the Cubs are against teams that are expected to make the playoffs this year. They've got Atlanta, Milwaukee, the White Sox, the Dodgers, the Padres, and to kick all that off, three games in Atlanta against the defending World Series champs, three games in Milwaukee against Randall's boys, the Brewers up there at uh, Amphan Miller Park Airplane Shed. This could be a real tough road trip, guys. Yeah, the Cubs got the off day here today, but you're going up against two of the best teams in the National League, and you're not exactly playing great baseball coming off this 2-5 and five homestand. I'm worried. This could get pretty ugly here over the next six days. I, yeah, I don't know about could. I fully anticipate it getting pretty ugly. I suspect I'm not going to have a whole lot of happy moments during this particular road trip. You know, I'd hope they're able to maybe come away with one win in each series, go two and four on the trip, but one, five, oh, and six, I don't think are off the table. They're playing two teams who in the case of the Braves are pretty good in case of the Brewers. I'm not saying anything nice about them other than the Cubs might have some trouble beating them. Maybe it's going to be a real difficult road trip. And I guess the saving grace is that um, they are off next Monday. And so we will have time to uh, lick our wounds and gather ourselves and potentially complain about it into multiple microphones again. Hopefully it's not like uh, 2021. We saw what happened with the Cubs went down to Atlanta. We saw how they started off against Milwaukee last year. Um, they got two out of three early this year, uh, that first opening series of the season. But last year in Atlanta, the Cubs, it was bad. When your only highlight is Anthony Rizzo striking out Freddie Freeman, it was pretty bad uh, last year. And uh, so hopefully going back down there, you know, the Braves aren't playing that well. They're, what, 6-10? and 10? So maybe – you know, you could steal a game or two uh, down there in Atlanta from the world champions. Uh, you know, they got that, that after world series, post world series hangover that the Cubs went through a little bit in 2017 early on. Uh, and then you're off to Milwaukee and it's there, you know, the uh, am fam, whatever it's called, it's going to be packed. You're going to have tons of Cubs fans up there, maybe get some support, but you know, those games are always, they're always interesting up there in Milwaukee. So I don't know. I'm not going to throw it out and say the Cubs are just, you know, going to have a terrible road trip. I think they can win two or three games, but uh, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. It's a tall task. I think is safe to say. What was the year? 2018 jumps out at me. The Cubs were in Atlanta early in the year. Bullpen was a complete disaster. I mean, they, it was like they could not get any outs early on in that year. They were just churning through guys in the bullpen. I don't feel like 2017 feels too early, but my memory is maybe 2018 
they were just they went to Atlanta early in the year and it was ugly. And I guess what I'm getting at with that is that it just feels like the last couple of trips to Atlanta haven't been very good for the Cubs. And I'm, I'm worried about what's going to happen here, even with the slow start for the Braves. Energy not feeling so good going into this road trip. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is a five-loss road trip. I hope Do, not. You know what I'm talking about? The year where the bullpen was just to open the year. They had no answers in the bullpen. And for me, 2018 is the year that's kind of sticking out to me. So I'm, I'm going down the uh, the game logs from these seasons. 2018, they were in Atlanta fairly early in the season, uh, May mid-May. So that's pretty early. They did lose two of three down there. Quintana got the loss in one of those games. And Edwards got the loss in the, the third of those games, or the, the first and third games of the series that they lost. Uh, so it could well be, it could well be 2018 that is coming to mind. We can poke through 2019. It does feel like, yes. 2019 is what I'm thinking 20, of. I see a whole bunch of red here on baseball reference. Absolutely. 2019, they went to Atlanta, uh, the fourth, fifth, and sixth games of the season. They got swept and, uh, looks like Hendrick. Yeah. Hendricks and Darvish took two of the losses and Ciszek took, the, the third of those losses. So it looks to me like 2019 is probably yeah. your culprit here where things were just a mess early in the season. And they were a mess early in the season. The 2019 Cubs, wonderful season that that was. They started the season in not great shape. They won the opener and then lost the next one, two, three, four, five, six, six in a row. So they started yeah. that season one and six. So it seems to me like that's probably your culprit is the wonderful 2019 season. I've had just bad thoughts of Atlanta since then uh, because that was ugly and it's just been a tough stretch down there. Obviously didn't get to go down there in 2020, but it, I don't like this road trip at all. And I don't like games in Milwaukee right now where Brewers may be the best team in the National League Central and you know they've got it out for the Cubs when half the fans in that ballpark are going to be wearing blue, cubby blue, that is. Yeah, you're right. I the Milwaukee, those Milwaukee games are always interesting. And you know, Hendricks has been bad in Atlanta. So hopefully, I know he, I don't think he's gonna get a start in Atlanta this year, but uh it, it hasn't been good from the Cubs starters, I feel like the last few times they've gone to Atlanta. So hopefully, you know, a guy like Marcus Stroman can write that ship. Well, here's a question for you both. So six games here, Atlanta for three, Milwaukee for three. Give me one thing you're looking forward to on the six game road trip before the Cubs back home for the Padres. Well, hopefully Rivas getting some more playing time. You know, we, we just finished talking about him. If he's one of your best hitters right now, play him. So, and he's had, he had a very good series uh, against Pittsburgh. Continue playing him. What's the worst that can happen? So hopefully he gets more at bats. Hopefully he continues to produce. And real quick, you are correct. The pitching matchups, or at least on the part of the Cubs, Stroman, Leiter, again, and Smiley are your three starting pitchers uh, in the series in Atlanta. You are correct. Hendricks will not get a start down there. But I'm looking forward to seeing Alfonso Rivas continuing to hit. Jeremy, what's got your attention here this road trip? Well, I'm, I, I, I guess I'm just focused on, you know, Stroman. I, I just hope he gets off to a really good start. I think he... He, he he needs to get that two seamer working or one seamer that he has um that and so that he's getting all these ground balls he's given up a lot of homers so far earlier on this year um for him um uh yeah so what I uh so I would really like to see Marcus Stroman write that ship I think he's given up a little bit more you know for him he's given up some homers he's not a guy who's prone to give up fly balls and I would like to see Marcus Stroman get some ground balls uh throw, working that two seamer that one seamer that he has. And so I, I just really, what I'm really interested in is seeing Marcus Stroman just having a very good uh, start in down in Atlanta. And hopefully, you know, not, not I don't want to see guys take him yard. I feel like that's gone too much this year. And I want to say one thing about Marcus Stroman. A lot of guys, if they would continue to struggle, especially at the start of a big contract and the start of the season, you'd be a little worried. I don't worry about Marcus Stroman mentally at all. We know how hard he works on the mental side of the game and keeping himself centered and keeping himself working. I don't worry about that with him at all. It's just a matter of results for him. Some guys, you know, you'd be worried. Is it going to snowball for them? I don't worry about that at all for Marcus Stroman. We just want to see the results from him. You know, I'm more worried about random people on the Internet's reactions, because anytime Stroman does anything bad, there's this huge contingent of Cubs fans that lose their damn minds. And OK, it comes with the territory, got the big contract, big free agent pitcher of the offseason. But it's like, folks. 
pump the brakes a little bit here. Let the guy have a month in Chicago before you make any declarations about what this guy is. And, and that, that's what you, that's what I love about fandom and about internet fandom. A, that there are random people who you have no choice but to read their opinions for some reason. And B, that we never learn anything. This is the very same fan base that watched John Lester struggle at the start of his Cubs career and go on to end up probably the greatest free agent signing in franchise history. I'd call him the second best free agent signing in city history. We learn nothing. Like every time somebody struggles at the start of a new contract, it's like we're seeing it for the very first time. And you really have to uh, admire that level of obliviousness. Well, Jason Hayward well, struggled. There's also a long history. And I guess okay. there's a long history of guys coming to Chicago and struggling too in their time on the north side. We think about it more as like those offensive batters. Moises Alou, his first season in Chicago, didn't go so well before he put together wonderful seasons the rest of the way. You got to give Stroman a little bit of time here. And they didn't have the normal spring training, all that. Maybe something that's a good sign here. Marcus Stroman has a lot of experience playing against Atlanta and in Atlanta all those years at New York. His first career home run came against Atlanta. Now that matters now right in this era of the DH, but it's worth noting that Marcus Stroman in his first career home run against Atlanta, maybe that's a sign that he gets things figured out on the mound. At least it's fun to think that way. I want to see him perform well, and he's the guy that I've got my eyes on tomorrow night. I'm with you, Jeremy. That's the one big thing that we're looking at here. Uh, Randall, the other thing we got to be thinking about, it is late April. Yeah, they got a dome in Milwaukee, but what can we expect weather-wise down in Dixie. Well, it is that time once again. We bring you the Cubs weather, courtesy of at Cubs weather, and courtesy specifically of at Alexander Hall. Follow both of those accounts on Twitter if you do not already. The Cubs playing the Braves this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. All the games at Truist Park in Atlanta, and all the games are 6:40, uh, I believe, local time. So 5:40 uh, Central time starts Tuesday and Wednesday. You can expect temperatures in the left field uh, at about five miles per hour on Tuesday and out to center field 10 to 15 miles per hour on Wednesday. Thursday will be sunny with temperatures in the upper 60s and wind out to center field at five miles per hour. The humidity all three nights will be comfortable and Alexander describes the series vibe as southern spring. The Cubs will escape the wild weather of Wrigley and settle into three very comfortable evening games in the Peach State. There is a slight chance for a shower on Wednesday evening, but other than that, the Cubs will get to play in some really spectacular southern spring air. And then they go from playing in the air to not playing in air at all, playing in a big concrete bubble in Milwaukee at and I quote, whatever they call it now, Alexander has the same thoughts on that ballpark as we do, but we have a Friday night game at 710 central time, 610 central time, Saturday night. And then of course, a 110 start Saturday or Sunday afternoon. I beg your pardon. We don't have to worry about the wind because they play in a dome, but Friday temperatures will be in the low fifties. Saturday temperatures also in the low fifties with a chance of rain Sunday in the mid fifties and also in it with a chance of rain. And the series vibe is a typically chilly Scani April. I've met Scani April. April. She's missing teeth. Temperatures in the 50s with a chance for showers Saturday and Sunday is probably enough to keep the roof closed for the series in Milwaukee because, again, they have a roof and they close it, which is blasphemy. If the roof is open, there could be a slight lake breeze uh, in from left field at 5 to 15 miles per hour for whatever that is worth in that enclosed concrete bubble of a ballpark. So, as always, we thank Alexander for the Cubs weather. We hope to have him on with again soon, out with us again soon. Alexander, a great personality, a friend of the pod, and we hope he will uh, have time to join us again on the podcast soon. Follow him on Twitter at Alexander Hall. Follow the Cubs weather account at Cubs Weather. Well, we will have Alexander on here soon, just kind of working out dates. Looking forward to chatting with him. You know, really, this past homestand seeing the value of that Cubs weather account. There was nasty weather basically every day except Saturday. And on Sunday, here I am kind of doing some remote work and thinking about stuff like that. I was able to tweet his account and say, hey, man, you know, like what time are we expecting? He had the radar. He was able to accurately predict when that game was going to get going. That's super helpful, especially this time of the year. Awesome account. They got a ton of followers. If you're not following at Cubs weather, please do so. And I'm excited to talk to Alexander Here's why. Got a Denver weather note that I'm really looking forward to run by him. Unless something changes here in the next week, we've had less than one quarter of an inch of moisture this entire month here in Denver. There have been days this month where I've texted both of you going, the humidity in Denver right now is 9%. It's unbelievable what's going on. I want to get his take on that. 
get the sense it's been especially wet in New York where he's stationed there in Brooklyn. So looking forward to talking that with him and all those weather notes, great account at Cubs weather. So lots to talk about on that front, but Hey, no rainouts this weekend, three games in Milwaukee. You know, those games are going to be on time. You know, there's not going to be any delays and you know, Randall J Sanders is going to be bitching left and right about Milwaukee Brewers fans and players and umpires all weekend. And I'm going to be right to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a long time, I think, until we see you back up in Milwaukee for a ball game. But yes, thanks again, Alexander. Uh, let's say one more thing on the Cubs front, and then Randall talking about teeing you off. We got some Angel Hernandez to get to here in a couple of minutes. Pete Crow Armstrong, one of the top Cubs prospects. He was the center fielder they got in exchange for that Javier Baez trade last year with the New York Mets. Randall, he is off to an incredible start with Myrtle Beach. Put this in perspective for our listeners a little bit here what the 20-year-old left-handed center fielder has been doing in his first month here with Myrtle Beach. Well, as you said, Ronan, he's off to a fantastic start. He's hitting at 326. He's on base at 463, and that is not all batting average driven. He's legitimately uh, putting in the patience in these plate appearances. He's slugging 581. For those of you at home who can do math, not me, I don't math, that is an OPS of 1044, 1044. This is what's standing out to me the most. He has identical strikeout and walk percentages at 14.8 both ways. So he is walking as much as he's striking out in his plate appearances, which is fantastic. He is seven of eight in stolen bases. He has two steals of home. He has two home runs, one over the wall, one inside the park. And in spring training, where he was getting an extended look uh, by the major league coaching staff, you had a number of people going on record as calling him a fantastic defensive center fielder. He's not going to continue doing this. These are fantastic numbers, but it allows you to dream on this, this superior defensive center fielder with all the offensive tools you could possibly want. So again, it's Myrtle Beach. It's the lowest level of the, the minors. It's not in the complexes, but you'd rather be excelling than struggling if you're going to do one or the other. And it, it's just great to watch this, this prospect that they identified uh, the year he was drafted. Was it last year or the year prior? But this prospect that they identified early in his professional career and the Cubs said, this is a guy we want in this organization. They got him and he's excelling at Myrtle Beach right now. So it's great to see. It was a year prior. Jeremy, any other thoughts on him? I mean, we got to see a little bit of him at spring training. This is a minor league prospect that Cubs fans should be very much an eye on incredibly high ceiling and this is a guy maybe patrolling center field at Wrigley for many years to come uh yeah you know he's he's uh as Randall said he's a, a, a very good uh center fielder he has speed he, he's very fast so uh I, I've seen a lot of comps I, I know I'm gonna say this and people are gonna not like it but there's I've seen a lot of cops to Albert Almora and in terms of the Don't how he was there. as a prospect and and the difference between him and Almora, though, is Almora never had elite speed. Almora was a great center fielder, but without elite speed. And I think PCA, Pico Armstrong, has the ability to have that elite speed that'll make him a much better center fielder, get to things. And, you know, he probably could project, you know, if he gets to his power potential, 15, 20 homers, um, he, he can hit a little bit. So, yeah, as a center fielder, that, that could be a, a really good player. I think of all the guys in the minor leagues, I mean, Davis is the closest. We'll be excited to see him a little bit later this year. Contra is a name that we're excited about. Plenty of guys to be looking forward to. But the upside here with Pete Crow Armstrong, I mean, if you have a center fielder with elite defense, top speed, a little bit of pop, an ability to walk, get on base, good contact, I get a little Kenny Lofton vibes from that. And I don't know if there's a better center fielder historically when you just think about like iconic, the, the guy that you picture being a center fielder who's played for the Cubs in the last 20 years. Kenny Lofton is that guy. If Pete Carl Armstrong can get anything close to that, we got a real winner on our hands. But I just like that combination of power, patience, defense. A little bit of Kenny Lofton would be welcome in a Cubs lineup for many years. Yeah, Kenny Lofton, Hall of Fame, to me, player. So I would definitely take a Kenny Lofton type. Plus, he's got a, he's got a great name, too. You just abbreviate him as PCA. And that's, that's just fun to say. Or just call him Crow. And that's essential for a good ball players you have a good nickname or a good abbreviation for him so he's got all the tools you could possibly need well randall you know what they say about crows intelligent smart can get violent if they need to 
So obviously lots to be excited about with Pete Crow Armstrong. We'll keep tabs on him as the season goes on. Uh, speaking of hot though, and I'm talking about his bat, hot moment last night in Philadelphia, Angel Hernandez, Randall's guy, Kyle Schwarber, our guy, pretty intense moment at Citizens Bank Park. If you didn't see it, one nothing ball game, ninth inning, one out, Schwarber's up, Josh Hader on the mound from Milwaukee, gets ahead of Schwarber 0-2, Works the count back full three and two, throws a pitch about two pitches off the uh, two inches off the plate, couple inches below the strike zone, rings up Kyle Schwarber for strike three, and man, blow up of the century. Schwarber slams the bat, slams the helmet. He tells Angel Hernandez something that we've all been thinking for the last 22 years about his competency and his job at the home plate umpire. But it brings up a big question across Major League Baseball over the status of umpiring and really the state of the game right now in the hands of these major league umpires. Randall, anytime there's an umpire moment, I turn to you first. I go on Twitter. You wrote this last night. The best time to get plate umpires out of the game was years ago. The second best time is as soon as fucking possible. A scourge and an embarrassment. I I know that's how you feel, Randall, and I'm sure here 24 hours later, you're not feeling any differently. Well, you know, it's difficult being right about this very important issue, but I carry that burden as best I can. Uh, You know, I'm aware they're not actually going to get rid of major league plate umpires, as entertaining as that would be, but you need to do something to get certain guys out of that position of calling balls and strikes. I think you have all the analytics in the world now telling you who is better at it compared to certain other umpires. I need, I think the league needs to have just a very serious, we know what they call a come to Jesus moment, just a very serious meeting with the umpires union, which of course is a very powerful union. And they need to say, look, our data says that your guy or your guys, Angel Hernandez and those like him, just are not doing the job calling balls and strikes. We're not going to put them behind home plate if we can help it. And I think you need to do that. And if you're not going to do that and bring the efficiency of major league umpires up on aggregate, I think you need to do something technologically to assist them. I'm aware we're not going to the fully computerized strike zone. And I'm even aware that if we were to do that, it probably wouldn't solve every problem, but you have means of making this better. The human eye is not getting any better. We are not evolving any better eyesight. And But technology will get better. And I think if you're not going to take certain guys out from that responsibility of calling balls and strikes, you need to do something to, to have every boat be lifted by the same tide and do something to improve it. Jeremy, I invite your rebuttal to this hot button topic right now. I don't know if I necessarily have a rebuttal. I know we disagree on a lot of things, but uh, I, I do agree. Like there are, are obviously umpires that are not good at their jobs. Um, Angel Hernandez is one of them. Uh, he, you remember he sued uh, Major League Baseball because he wasn't getting those primo spots and it, uh, discrimination. And, and I guess if discriminating against bad umpires is a protected class, I don't know. Maybe it is. <laughs> but uh, yeah. But uh, I, you know, I remember when they introduced the Quest Tech like 20 years ago to judge the umpires, and Kirk Schilling was not a fan. He took the bats to it. Um, but like they've been judging the umpires and I, I, for a long time, and you're supposed to, you know, have to have a certain hit rate. And I would hope that, you know, maybe we could develop like a threshold that like, if you're not hitting this threshold, you, you should not be calling balls and strikes. Like you, 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 you know, we, I, I think we've seen over the years that uh, I don't necessarily know about, you know, the human eye evolution, all that stuff, but the human eye does degrade over time in terms of, you know, your own age. And I think we've seen older umpires struggle a little bit more than the younger umpires do. I, I think if you go in the data, it, it kind of plays out that way. So it wouldn't surprise me. Maybe, you know, you should probably both have a threshold for, you know, getting a certain amount of calls, pitches called and right. And like, if you're exceeding that, you could probably stay umpire, but maybe there should also be like an age review system where like, okay, you're getting a little up. It's one thing to call outs and certain plays and know all the rules on the field, but, you know, that ball's coming in 95, 100 miles an hour over a small second. Like, you got to have the eyesight to, like, you know, okay, let's make those calls. Maybe there needs to be an age threshold there, too. And guys are throwing with insane velocity in the present-day game. They are throwing with insane movement. And we are asking even young umpire eyes to track this couple inches in diameter, little white spheroid as it passes around or through or near an invisible trapezoid. And I just don't think that's reasonable for the part of the officiating that is maybe the most essential 
to the game and has no mechanism for fixing it in the game. And I think something needs to be done. And I think if you're not going to augment it technologically, Jeremy, I think that's a very reasonable middle ground solution is again, just pull certain umpires out of that home plate rotation. And I think on aggregate, those numbers will go up uh, a very reasonable amount just by not having Angel Hernandez and a few other guys calling balls and strikes and calling pitches uh, a foot outside as strikes and having Kyle Schwarber go through the whole fusion dance uh, right in front of him at home plate. See what happens when Joe West retires. All the umpires go to shit and everything falls apart. Uh, One less umpire to go to shit. Uh, (laughs) Angel Hernandez missed 15% of the pitches last night. And to put that in perspective, if there's, I don't know, 250 pitches thrown in a ball game like that, it was a one nothing game. So it's not as if this was a game with base runners all over the place. You're talking about 40 pitches over the course of the night that, this strike should have been called a ball. This ball should have been called a strike in a one nothing game. That's very much the difference in who wins and who doesn't win. And it, that's frustrating. It's frustrating for people sitting at home that are watching it going, man, this doesn't feel right. Um, there's a wonderful Twitter follower out there or a follow that I think you should have. And I'm going to butcher his last name. And I don't mean to do that because I've got tremendous respect for the guy. Uh, Randall, correct me if I'm wrong here with the last name. Is it Harry... Pavlidis? I believe it's Pavlidis. I think there's Pavlidis. a, a, a okay, high cool. eye in there. Pavlidis. Yeah. Uh, no disrespect. They're getting the name wrong. I'm doing the best that I can here. He's the director of research and development with Baseball Prospectus. And I think that he had one of the best takes out there regarding the current state of umpiring. Um, and I want to read the tweet that he wrote. Major League Baseball needs to sit down with the umpires union, have an honest talk about who is allowed to call balls and strikes. And his point there was the younger better trained umpires are excellent. It's these older guys, like you guys are saying, that are struggling with the way that the game is changing and the way that the pitching is changing. The technical training, the feedback that these umpires go through just to get to the major leagues is harder than it's ever been. And the young crop of umpires, the guys whose names we don't know, are the ones that tend to be doing a better job than the ones that are currently there. Now, the problem here is that the union contract with the umpires runs through the 2024 season. So realistically, are we going to get any changes the next three years? Probably not. But I do think we can look to the mid part of this decade, 2025 and beyond, and maybe at that juncture, we're going to see significant changes to the way that umpiring is done in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I'm of the belief that if you know an official's name, other than seeing it in the box score, hearing it at the the start of the broadcast as they give you the umpiring crew, chances are that umpire has done something particularly wrong. And I I, I don't want to get too much into Joe West because I know we just have differing opinions on Joe West and that's fine. I don't need my umpires to have personality. I don't need to know that they sing country music. I don't need to know what their golf game is like, because to me, that is an umpire who has elevated himself above the game and made it about him. And I think that's the problem with a guy like Angel Hernandez is he, I think he genuinely believes sometimes that people are there to see him officiate the game. And I think that contributes at least in part to what he does. So again, I'm very much in favor of this kind of compromise solution until they get to the point of renegotiating where certain umpires are simply no longer allowed to call balls and strikes. I think that is a a rising tide that would lift all boats in the vernacular. I think you'd see the numbers get a lot better on aggregate if you take a couple of bad apples out of that data set. Is Angel Hernandez the most disliked active umpire? I would think so. Joe West is gone. Someone's got to take up that mantle. Maybe Joe West left a whole bunch of like wristbands in some of the umpire attendance rooms with a note for Angel. You're carrying the torch now, Angel. It's your job. I think Angel, Angel's pretty bad at his job. I, I think, I think honestly, I think his biggest issue is he's just bad. I, I, I don't know if there's anything more to it. He's just a bad umpire. Um, you know, Randall says about you know, the guys we know are probably not the great, even if we know their name. I mean, I'll throw another name out, a guy like Stevie Buckner. Uh, tends not to make a little bit of mistakes every once in a while or some bad calls. So, you know, generally I will agree with Randall. If you know the umpire's name, it's usually not for a good reason. Um, So, you know, those types of guys, and those are probably the guys that hold the most sway. I mean, they're in the union. They've been there forever. They've been there the longest. So the older umpires are tend to be the ones that have the most power and most control. And I am, I am pro union. I am pro labor. But the umpire union is probably the reason why change has been resisted for so long, because they know they are in this position of strength and they know that the league can't necessarily 
uh, institute unilateral changes because they are dealing with the umpire union. And I think that's why you've seen umpires resistant to change for so long, because they, they know they have this powerful union. And for the most part, it protects them from consequences. There are no consequences for being a bad umpire. Maybe you lose a postseason assignment here and there. Maybe you don't get to work an all-star game, but there are no real consequences publicly for being a bad umpire. We're told all the time they're evaluated behind the scenes and that's great, but there, there's no transparency to that. And some of the overseas leagues, there actually are consequences. It was not all that long ago where a, a base umpire in the KBO, the Korea Baseball Organization, missed a very obvious call at third base. He was actually demoted to their minor leagues the, the next day. And, you know, you don't really have a mechanism for that here. I don't know if KBO umpires are unionized, but there are no there are no visible consequences for being a bad umpire in Major League Baseball. You just get to keep doing your job. Randall, Randall you know who, oh, sorry. I was going to say, do you know who one of the biggest proponents for instant replay was? Joe West. He was a big, huge proponent for instant replay because he said it would show how good the umpires actually are. Well, sure. Yeah, bring me Solo and the Wookiee. Okay, Jabba. I'm just waiting for Randall to roll out the trebuchet here for, hey, you blew that call at home plate. Get him out of here and take care of the umpire. The only argument, Randall, that I'll say to your thing about knowing the umpire's name is there is something to be said about anybody with longevity that there are certain names that you've seen for 20 years watching baseball, you start to recognize some of these umpire names. Uh, Dale Scott, one of those names. Unfortunately, he had to retire a couple of years ago because of concussion issues, but that was one of those guys. The, my whole life watching baseball, Dale Scott was a guy you saw behind the plate. He was out there calling games. You start to pick up on some of those names. But to your point, I, I really get what you're saying there. And I'm certainly not going to be somebody here who's going to defend C.B. Buckner or Angel Hernandez. I've hated Angel Hernandez since 2001 in that Ricky Gutierrez game. That was the eye-opening moment for me as a Cubs fan with Angel. And he's gotten no better since. In fact, he's probably gotten worse. It's been it's been 21 years since Mongo McMichael said he was going to have speaks with that umpire. And it has not improved at all. Ronan? If you know, if you want to, what you said about honoring longtime umpires, that's fine. If a guy's been in the league for, been in the game for ten years, twenty years, thirty years, that's fine. You know, have like a, a thirty-second ceremony at the start of a game, and I can learn the guy's name for the first time. Like, wow, he's been around for this long, and I've never had any reason to learn his name. That's the highest honor I could bestow upon an umpire is to have never really heard of him before, but realize he's been around the game for a very long time. I think that is the nicest thing you could say about an umpire. Well, Randall, I give you about, I don't, let's see what we're recording this. It's uh, almost 10 o'clock here in Denver. Cubs are playing in about, what, 18 hours or so. I give you about 18 hours and 30 minutes before the next complaint with you here about the status of Major League Baseball umpiring. I'm but like a clock. I'm like a clock. You can set your watch to me. Like, oh, Randall's complaining about the umpire. It must be five minutes after first pitch. Yeah, it's a uh, it's, – uh, I know kind of that uh, nature is healing when you're complaining about umpiring, but it is something that has gotten a lot of attention because of Kyle Schwarber last night, and we've got a decade's worth of gifts – that have been coming together from that of 10 years from now, you're going to see that image of Kyle Schwarber blowing up on Angel Hernandez over something. And it's going to be one of those iconic images from this season. It's going to have staying power is what I'm trying to say. Schwarber had some really good moves as he was standing. He did the whole thing. He had his arms crossed. He was doing that. We got a seam here and a seam here. We're going to try and run it through the alley here. He went through a whole lot of motions and for something that he was probably doing while raged out of his mind and in the yeah. moment there was a lot of good choreography to that and that's there's Kyle Schwarber's uh, show choir background showing up as he's out there yelling at Angel Hernandez so good for you for putting on a show there Kyle yeah and what really sucks about it is it was a tremendous plate appearance for Kyle Schwarber and I know you're not going to compliment any brewers but we know how good Josh Hader is and we know how difficult it is for a left-handed batter to face somebody like that he was down 0-2 he earned the walk and now you've got the winning run at the plate, and the Phillies are a team where damn near anybody in that lineup can knock the ball out of the ballpark, and the guy on deck flew out to the warning track to end the game. So you just go like, man, let the game play itself out. You don't want the umpires to get in the way. Uh, we'll be ready, Randall, for the next blown call because I know you're going to have something to say on that front. Always. Well, this is our 66th podcast. This is not a number that a ton of Cubs have worn. Just three players in Chicago Cubs history have worn number 66 going back to 2011. So 11 years ago, nobody wore number 66. Of the three, including one active Cub, who's got your attention, Randall? 
Well, I'm probably Rafael Ortega. He is, as you said, the one active Cub uh, to have worn that number. But Rafael Dolis, I remember being pretty high on him as a, a reliever coming out of the minors. Um, you know, he was a number 66, and then it's a pretty small sample size. The only other guy to have been a 66 was Munenori Kawasaki, who, very jovial individual. He saw a little bit of time with the 2016 Cubs. And, you know, Rafael Ortega is what he is, maybe a decent fourth or fifth outfielder. So it, it, it's not a particularly big sample size with the number 66 here. But at the very least, I remember all three of these individuals. And that's not, al- that's not always going to be the case as we get up into the higher numbers here, uh, higher and higher. Muninori Kawasaki was pretty much the uh, team mascot of the 2016 World Series champion Chicago Cubs. Uh, he was always a delight in the dugout. And uh, he's got a World Series ring. And uh, I'm with you, Randall. I, I recall all three of these guys, Rafael Delis, Munori Kawasaki, and Rafael Ortega. So uh, Ortega, the only guy to wear 66 in two seasons. That's correct. Everyone else uh, was only a one-season wonder. Uh, Kawasaki <laughs> was only a Cub for 2016. Rafael Delis was a Cub for a couple of seasons after that, but he dropped his number to a much more reasonable 48 for his final two seasons as a Cub. But yeah, Munenori Kawasaki, there's two things I'll always remember about him. One is that he is Japanese in his own words. And two is that he was the roster move when Kyle Schwarber tore his ACL and went on the the injured list at the start of that season. Kawasaki came up and filled that roster spot. So two, two trivia facts about Kawasaki. Well, we're talking number 66, and yes, you think about all the things in Cubs history, 66, one man comes to mind for me. He didn't wear the number, but he hit 66 bombs in 1998. That's, of course, our guy, Sammy Sosa, that MVP season in 1998 when the Cubs win the wild card. 66 home runs, 158 driven in, 308, 377, 647 the slugging percentage for Sammy Sosa that year. There are so many stats and figures and notable things about Sammy in 98, but I think I found the one stat that trumps it all. And it kind of builds off that 20 home run June, which of course is the record for home runs hit in one month. Hear this. No major league baseball player has ever hit more than 17 home runs in a 22 game span, except 1998 Sammy Sosa, who hit 21 home runs in 22 games in that stretch in time there into June of 1998. That is absolutely incredible, the run that he put on there. I've said it forever, bring Sammy home. What's better than that? 21 home runs in 22 games. We may never see that again. Just insane. You know, there's a lot of guys who would kill for a 21 home run season, and Sammy did it in less than a month. It's insane. It's one of those things I don't know that we'll ever completely see again. Almost a home run a day. That's insane for 20 days, for three weeks. He almost hit a home run almost a day. My, uh, for Sammy, to me, the craziest Sammy set to me is always the fact that he hit, he's the only guy ever to hit 60 home runs three times, only guy to ever do it three times. And in none of those seasons did he ever lead the league in homers. Yeah, wild time in baseball there in the late 90s, early 2000s. But uh, June 98, Sammy, unbelievable stretch of power and just just crushing the ball too. It's not like he had a lot of cheap home runs that just landed in the basket. When Sammy hit the ball, it was on Waveland. It was on top of the camera well in center field. No cheap shots for Sammy. Uh Amazing, amazing run for him, and uh, pretty cool to see that stretch he had in 98. Well, that's all we got here this week. We're going to come back next week. We hope to have a guest. We also hope this season hasn't completely derailed with this tough road trip coming up. Three in Atlanta, three in Milwaukee. We'll have lots to talk about. Number 67 coming back next week on Behind the Yellow Line. For Jeremy and Randall, this is Ronan. Take care of yourselves. No more COVID-positive tests. We'll see you next week here on the pod. 